Let's pray. Father, may we, as we embark upon uh, this new journey, this year, this new book of the Scriptures, Father, may, may You do as You please in our hearts, in our minds, and with our hands. Father, may Your Word do what only it can do, and that is bring dead bones to life. Father, may that be true even this day as we think about what You've written to those hearing this book for the first time and to us who are reading this book millions and millions and millions of times after the first time. Father, may may this be a journey that proves edifying and encouraging, correcting, and satisfying to our souls in a way that only you can do. Father, it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. If you were writing to someone who is suffering, what would you write? If you were writing to someone who is suffering, what would you write? I sit in the counseling room, which is nothing other than my office, and across the table from someone struggling, oftentimes suffering, rather it's, whether it's from the sin in their own lives or the sin of other people or a combination of both, but nevertheless they're suffering and ask this question all the time, what am I to say to someone who is suffering? What would you write? Would you try to comfort them? Would you try to encourage them with words like, you know, everything will be okay. It will be alright. Peter's words of encouragement will probably be rather shocking to our modern ears. To our culturally defined and shaped ears, Peter's words of encouragement in the midst of suffering might come across, honestly, to some of us as maybe rather harsh or mean or dismissive even. I mean, in in our culture today, and and when I say our culture in this sense, I, I mean even in the church as well, even in this church that God oftentimes is only good so far as He can make us feel better about our situation. That He can kind of give us the right therapy to make it through our situation. This is certainly true in the broader culture and certainly true in what our country calls Christianity. But it's even true in the midst of true followers of Jesus, that we oftentimes want a God who can make us feel better about our situation. Therefore, any words of encouragement must be defined as that which would make me feel better right now. If it doesn't fit that definition, then it should not be said. And by the way, 
in that context, you and I become the final arbiter of what should make me feel better. So you become the judge of what it is that I should be hearing in this moment. Peter's words probably wouldn't have been acceptable for many of us during our times of suffering. It's certainly true in the broader culture, but I'm afraid it's even true here. I'm afraid that it's oftentimes true of my own heart. That Peter's words would probably not have been acceptable for me. Now, as we look at this, this book, as we begin the book of 1 Peter, there are certainly comforting words all over the place. Nice words, hopeful words. Words that are shared in this letter to suffering and hurting people. He is comforting them. He is encouraging them in that way, the way we would probably most likely seek to encourage someone who is suffering. But there's so much more in the book of 1 Peter and what Peter writes to these people. There's more than just, hey, it will be okay. Hey, God loves you. Hey, God is sovereign. Hey, God works all things out for the good of those who are loved and called according to His purpose. Yes, those things are good and pertinent and important. They, they need to be said. But Peter shares more than just those words to a people who are suffering. This past week, I had the honor of, of conducting a funeral. I, I, honestly, I've, I've only done three. And I don't think they get any easier as you do them. Uh, it was hard. And it was quite agonizing to think through this. I, I did not know the person who had passed away, but knew the family, um, which that doesn't make it any easier either. Um, that's quite, I mean, I don't know what would be easier, knowing the person or not. Uh, either way, it's just hard. Um, but knowing the family and, and at least some of the family and, and such, it was, it was a challenge. A time of suffering and a time of grieving. No, no matter what the situation is, no matter how they died, it is still someone who was loved and someone who is gone, and so therefore suffering and grieving. What do you share in the midst of that? What do you share in the midst that's appropriate during their suffering? What do you say to those who are hurting? Um... A little bit of what I shared this week was that they can trust that their loved one is in the hands of God and that He makes no mistakes. I said that Jesus grieved, thinking, and I basically gave a very, very short exposition of, of Jesus at the tomb with Lazarus. And Jesus grieved, and so it's appropriate for us to some measure to grieve too. But also said this, that hope in Christ for salvation is the only hope that will get you through grief. Now understand that the context is that a good many of the people listening were probably not followers of Jesus. And so to give them hope apart from Jesus would be to give them a crutch to walk the rest of the way to hell. So, so to give them a, a quicker path, if you will, to make it to 
eternal condemnation. So to not share the hope of Jesus in the midst of that, regardless of what they may think of me in the end, was crucial. And so hope in Christ, because if you remember when Jesus is grieving in Lazarus, and this is not the sermon for today, so I'll try to spend too much time here, but uh, he said, he grieves over the loss of Lazarus, so on and so forth. But what does he also say in that passage? That I am the resurrection, I am the life, right? So hope in Christ for salvation is the only hope that will get you through your grief. And, and, and in many ways, that's what he's saying to those at the tomb of Lazarus, that, that I am the only means of hope for you. I'm the only means of hope for Lazarus as well. Now listen, here's the reality. Those words were probably not comforting for many of the people that hurt them. They might have even been offensive. What I gave them was, and what Christ gave them ultimately in that passage is a call to action. Namely, that there is a gospel, rather there is a God who has a gospel. Now believe. It was a call to action. A call to something beyond their grief. A call to something beyond their suffering and something beyond their sorrow. It's not a dismissing of the suffering, not a dismissing of the sorrow, but actually hope for them within the sorrow to look beyond the sorrow to a God who has a gospel and to act in belief. In the midst of their grief, I encouraged them that there is more than their eyes can see right now, in your suffering, there's always more than your eyes can see right this second. Indeed, no matter what the situation is, right? As we talked about in Ruth, there's always more than meets the eye. Peter's words are just that in the midst of the suffering of his readers. Peter's words are a call to action. A call to take steps. A call to do something. To do something with their heart, to do something with their mind, and to do something with their hands. It's a call to do something beyond the suffering that they're experiencing. He tells them what needs to be true in their beliefs and in their actions. Paul Tripp said this, When you are hurting, depressed, or suffering, melancholy and such, I'm paraphrasing here, what is the temptation? So in the midst of suffering that induces things like depression, hurting, suffering, melancholy, so what is the temptation? To turn inward, right? To, to turn inward. That's what we do. We solidify our thoughts in how everything relates to us. That's really what we do. We begin a journey of thinking more thoroughly about how life relates to us and is centered around us instead of around Christ. We turn inward. That's what we do. We become more self-aware. We become more self-focused. <clears throat> we begin to take ourselves too seriously, if you will, in a sense. And when we turn inward, something else that happens is we become the authority of what is good for us. What is good for us to hear in that moment? 
what is good for us to happen so that we can get on to the next thing. And oftentimes because of this, because we are self-focused, inward-directed, and now the authority of what is good for us, we begin to do things like discount the good care that God has sent us. Or we justify not listening to truth spoken to us. We become the arbiter of truth. We become the judge and the jury. Now, let me say this. Listen, if you're on the side of giving truth, the, the messenger, if you will, you understand, listen, so you can always speak truth in a better way. We can always be more effective in the way we say. We can always be more blameless even in the way we say things. But on the flip side, if you're the one receiving it, the problem is oftentimes that we spend more time judging the messenger than we do the message. Right? We spend more time thinking about the person so that we can excuse the truth that's being said to us. But look at what Peter does in the midst of the struggle of his hearers. It's it's incredible, both pastoral wisdom and just general shepherding and discipling each other kind of wisdom. It's good for us to think, how is Peter interacting with those suffering as we are called to interact with people who are suffering, including our own hearts? How does Paul interact with those who are suffering? Here's what Peter does. If I could give you a big overview of the book of 1 Peter. Peter takes their suffering and calls them to something greater. He takes their suffering and calls them to something greater. He doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't say, you know, it'll be fine. He doesn't uh, disregard it. But he says the pathway through your suffering is to keep your eyes on and to take action to move towards something greater. He gives them a vision for something more. Now, now listen, here's the deal. That's oftentimes a message in our culture too. Oh, you're suffering. Well, listen, it's just going to make you better. It's just going to push you on to something greater. I was listening to an interview between someone who... uh, who got rejected from hosting the Grammys this year. And basically says, you know, the struggles of my past have made me a better person. I had a, I've had a vision for something greater. He didn't say those exact words, but that was the idea. That it's through this adversity that I've become a better person. And, but that's not, what, that's not what Peter's saying. I mean, in a sense he is, but he's saying even more than that. He's saying, we have our eyes fixed on something greater. And we're going to spend the next, at least the next nine weeks thinking about what is this something greater that Peter is pushing us to, that Peter is calling those in suffering to see. You see, what he does in this book is he calls their attention away from themselves. Yes, even in the midst of their suffering, he calls them, their attention away from themselves. Now listen, if you've ever been in suffering, if you haven't, you will be. If you're ever helping someone in suffering, the last thing that we and most people want is to have our attention called away from our suffering. 
oftentimes we, I, I, I think it's just foolishness and it's a, maybe our evil hearts or whatever, but we just, we just want to kind of live there and we want to hunker down there and we want to make that our dwelling place. But what does he do? What does Peter do? He calls them to faithfulness. He calls them to obedience. He calls them to holiness. He calls them to righteousness. Yes, even in the midst of their suffering and trials. If we're not careful, if we don't have others around us who are willing to spur us on, Suffering will cause us to forget what God has said. You see, real security for suffering, real security for suffering is found in our relationship to our Savior. Real security for suffering is found in our relationship to our Savior. Quoting, this provides, this relationship to our Savior, provides the only genuine sense of inner well-being. This is the only thing that provides stability when life is unstable. Our relationship with our Savior. That's why we think back to the funeral conversation. Their lives had just been made incredibly unstable. At least the visibleness of the instability of their lives was made clear in those days. What is their hope? A stable Savior. Real security for suffering is found and our relationship to Jesus. Knowing who we are in relationship to our Savior is where Peter begins. We'll begin there too. First thing I want you to see is that you are chosen foreigners. You are chosen foreigners. <clears throat> I don't, I don't particularly like the ESV, I, the ESV's translation here. Uh, you know, you can, you can uh, burn me at the stake later, but it says exiles. Exiles t- tends to carry the connotation, uh, particularly from the Old Testament, that they have been disobedient and now are being sent into exile, that God in, in disciplines His people and sends them into the Babylonian exile and so on and so forth. And so there's a sense of... of Pun, not punishment, but, but discipline for God's people. I don't, I don't think that uh, that is the best word. The better words are like alien uh, or stranger or foreigner. So that's why I've used this word, you are chosen foreigners. It says First Peter, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. Now listen, this is not simply about the location of these people geographic like Peter is not just saying hey I just want I want you to know who's included in my writing who should be listening these people who are here these people who are here these people are here these people are here that's not his point his point is not to say hey you guys at Renovation Church in Beaver Creek and hey you guys at uh, 
uh, refuge in downtown Dayton, and hey, you guys, that Covenant Presbyterian in Vandalia, it's not his point. What he's talking about here is their identity. He's talking about their identity. He is saying this. Let me quote. Don't you know that you have been chosen to live in a foreign country, to live in a culture that is not your culture? He's making an identity claim. He's saying God has chosen you to be a people among a people that you're not a part of. Let me give you some examples. If God has chosen you, He didn't just choose to save you from your sins, but has chosen you to live in a place that will cease to be as comfortable as it once was. That's His point. You are chosen foreigners. You you are in these places, but you are not of these places. You are different than these. You are a foreigner in this place. He has chosen you to live in a place that you should not fit any longer. You have a different set of rules. You have a different set of motivations. You have a different set of plans. You operate by different principles. You don't belong anymore. And he's saying you have been chosen to this. You have been elected to this. Now for a long time we have propped up, I think in our Christian culture, at least in the West, we've propped up a very, out, uh, very outward differences as satisfactory for not fitting into the culture. Things like no alcohol, no drugs, no tattoos, voting Republican, etc., etc., right? That's what makes you different than the culture. The bowls have been mighty clean on the outside and terrible on the inside. But the Scriptures tell us this in Luke 12, 2-3, that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What's he saying? That the inside of the bowl, the filthiness of the inside of the bowl will be exposed. It will be uncovered. It will come to light. The light now will shine on the inside of the bowl. I think in part, that's what's happening in our culture, at least over the past couple years, is that the dirty insides of modern American Christianity is being exposed. It's being shown for what it really is. And that's what trials and suffering oftentimes do. But I would also say this, before we are too quick to judge those outside the church, right? we would also need to recognize that it's happening inside this church as well. That oftentimes it's what makes many of us uncomfortable. Like the outside looks pretty nice. And so we're thinking, ah, you know, just like every other church, we'll be good. And then what happens is what we have covered up slowly gets exposed. And then comes the true test of our walk with Jesus. Are we prepared by what we believe concerning the cross to have our insides exposed so that we might be cleaned, cleansed, that we might walk in holiness? You know what truly makes us a foreigner in this country? 
a distinct difference in the chief love of our heart. A distinct difference between the chief love in the culture's heart and the chief love in our heart. Notice I didn't say, like, we just got to love more. That's not the issue. We all, we all love lots. The issue is what we love. The world loves itself. But a follower of Jesus loves Him. That's the chief love of His heart. The ruling love. Whatever is the chief love, whatever is the, the paramount love or the apex of the love of your heart is the ruling love of your heart. That thing that drives what we say and what we do. And if that is Jesus, then you will say and act different than the culture. In almost every way. I would encourage us at this point, I think I'd be remiss to not mention this, that some of us really need to ask the question though, how much different from the culture am I really? How much different from the culture am I really? And even ask the question, how much am I seeking to be different than the culture? Why would we ask this question? Because it should shine some light onto what is the chief love in your heart. So does the way things like the way I spend my time, does that say that the chief love of my heart is Jesus? Or does it say that the chief love of my heart is entertainment? The way I spend my time, is the, does that say that the chief love of my heart is financial security? Or let's go on to the money thing. Does the way I spend my money say so? Do I store up money because I don't trust God with tomorrow just like the rest of the world doesn't trust God for tomorrow? I'm not saying we shouldn't have retirement. Don't push what I'm saying too far. Does my voting say, does the way I treat my spouse say that the chief love of my heart is Jesus, or does it say that the chief love of my heart is what my spouse won't give me right now? Or does the way I read my Bible say so? Or do I read my Bible just like the rest of the world does? Every once in a while and when it's convenient. Or does the way I pray say that the chief love of my heart is different than the rest of the world? Do I just pray for myself, although that is very important? Or do I pray that God's will be done, that, that He be made glorious in my life? What are the chief concerns expressed in my praying? Listen, the rest of the world asks God for good things. But God's people ask God for God things. Like His glory and His holiness to be made known through me. The rest of the world doesn't ask for that. You see, so do our prayers look just like the rest of the cultures? Does it look, do our prayers make us, here's the point, do our prayers, the way we spend time, money, voting, the way we treat our spouse, the way we treat our kids, the way we treat our friends, the, the way we trust leaders, in the church and outside of the church. Do those things make me look like a foreigner who doesn't belong in this culture?
something we need to realize is this. That you are chosen. If you are a follower of Jesus and have been chosen by God to be a follower of Jesus, you are chosen You have been elected, to use Peter's word here, you are elected, have been elected, you have been chosen to have the blessing of being a foreigner in this world. The blessing of being a foreigner in this world. You have been honored to no longer fit. Did you hear me? You have been honored to no longer fit. You have been graced to be misunderstood. Now, now listen, we'll be careful. We don't want to be like, okay, well, I don't know how to talk about Jesus, and so now I'm misunderstood, and that's not what I'm talking about. But when you represent the Lord and people don't understand, you have been blessed to be misunderstood. You have been chosen to do things in a way that make no sense to the world. You have been set free to this. right? But the lie of the garden, the lie of Satan is that, no, the blessing is out there. The blessing is beyond this. When Peter's point, where he's starting at with this grace, may grace and peace abound. And what I'm just said, I want to spur on grace and peace and, and comfort in your lives. And one of the things he says is that you don't belong. And you've been chosen to this. You've been honored to be this. You shouldn't be grieved by this. You shouldn't wish that you were more understood, or that you fit better. I mean, yes, in a sense, if you're saying, I just want them to have a heart that knows and understands Jesus, yes. But for us to want to fit in is us not realizing, not believing the blessing it is to have been chosen to be a foreigner in this place. Someone said, this cross-cultural existence is a sure sign that transforming grace has been given to you. That God's transforming grace is making you different than the world around you. Listen, this kind of heart rejoices at places that others don't. You ever find yourself rejoicing in a place that the rest of the world around you doesn't rejoice about? Ever rejoice in suffering? Ever done that? I mean, I'm not the king of doing it, but I have experienced it here and there. Experienced plenty of suffering, but the, the experiencing rejoicing in the midst of suffering makes no sense to the world around you. Different things are important to you than others. But here's the deal. It's all grace. It's God's grace that has set you free to be a foreigner in this world. Now, just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not His grace. The next thing you to see is that God chose to love you before the world even began. 
God chose to love you before the world even began. He chose some to be exiles and their situation. And it says in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now I'm not going to get into, you know, some use this to explain that God elected some based on who He foreknew would choose Him. That's not the grammar in this text. It doesn't make any sense that way. It's not God chose those whom He foreknew would choose Him, and He just kind of shirred up the choosing. That's not. But here's the question. What does He mean by according to the foreknowledge of God? Here's the question we have to ask. Is that, what is this phrase describing before it, Right? If we're reading the sentence, I guess if you're looking at the sentence, right? Here's the part of the sentence, then according to the foreknowledge of God is over here. What is it describing that happened before? Is the term, here's the question, is the term simply describing, I'm sorry, is the phrase simply describing the word elect? The electing of God, the election of God. Is this phrase just describing this, that he foreknew who he was going to elect? Or does the phrase apply to the whole previous section? To the choosing, to the exiling, to the dispersion, to the suffering, to the geographical locations of their suffering. What does that phrase apply to? It's all of it. The according to the foreknowledge of God the Father applies to all of it, to the choosing, to the exile, to the dispersion, to the suffering, to the geographical locations. All of it. Peter is saying this, church. God foreknew every aspect of your lives. Every detail of your life, God foreknew it. He knew you. He knew your circumstances. He knew your suffering. He has known it all. For those in suffering, and for those who will be shortly, everything I face, I can say, my Father knows what's going on. Let me ask you that. When you are suffering, again, what happens, right? We turn inward. What is another uh, experience that kind of couples the idea of suffering? It's what? Loneliness. I feel alone. I'm all by myself. No one understands what I'm going through. No one gets it. No one knows what this is like. Peter is saying, you know what? He doesn't just know what it's like right now, but he has known it for all eternity. That he knows every detail of your situation, every ounce of your struggle. He knows me. He knows my circumstances. He knows the struggles of my heart. But here's the deal. Listen, church, it's not just that God knows a fact. He doesn't just know the facts of that. It's not what Paul's point is. That's not the idea in the Greek here. The idea is that God is knowing His people with a personal and loving, fatherly knowledge. He knows it intimately and knows it lovingly. He doesn't just simply know the details of the situation. 
when life doesn't make sense to you, it makes sense to God. That's part of Peter's point. When it doesn't make sense to you, it makes sense to God. He knows. He knows it intimately. I mean, all of us can think of a situation right now that hurts. And God knows it with fatherly love. Every detail, and it makes sense to Him. God doesn't just know that you're going through a situation. He understands the situation. Life is often not going to make sense to you. Maybe having this child or this next child or this next, next, next child doesn't make sense to you. Maybe the sinfulness of a family member doesn't make sense to you. Maybe the faultiness of our governing leaders doesn't make sense to you, but it all makes sense to God. The dispersion made sense to God. Their suffering made sense to God. When I say it made sense, it isn't that He just he gets the details of the facts, but the reasoning and the purpose behind it is all known to God. It makes sense to Him. Listen, when you look back, maybe you're not suffering directly right now because of a situation, but you look back in your life and you go, man, those five years, if I could go with never living those five years, that would be my preference. The suffering I experienced there was horrible. Listen, it makes sense to God. The one who set the direction of your life long ago, he knows He understands. He is not puzzled. This is part of why we need the graces that He has given us, like we talked about over the summer, the habits of grace. This is why you need the Scriptures, because you need to know how God thinks about your situation. I was in a a, a rather lengthy lunch conversation this past week with an old friend. He's talking about his son, growing up in the church, no longer goes to church. All because some things in this life don't make sense to him. Some things concerning why these people would live this way and these people would live this way and it doesn't make sense to him. Here's my question. Why does it have to make sense to you? Why does it have to make sense to you? Because you want to feel like God. I want to feel like God. That's why I want it to make sense to me. Because I want to feel powerful. I want to feel in control. I want to feel the comfort of knowing. Since when does God operate in a way that has to make sense to you? That it has to make sense to me? Where is the right given to us in the Scriptures To have everything make sense to us. It's not there. You won't find it. Stop grasping for it. There are going to be things in this church, even decisions made that don't make sense to you. There are going to be things in your job, in your health, with your children, in your parenting, things that don't make sense. But listen, if you can trust that it makes sense to God, then maybe you can walk in joy and peace 
and holiness and faithfulness in the midst of it. So many times we spend so much of our energy trying to make sense of things when all the while God is simply saying, listen, it makes sense to me. Trust me. Now act. Now go. Be faithful. When life doesn't make sense to you, don't forget, it makes perfect sense to God. Now, I'm not saying we walk around mindlessly and we don't try to understand things. That's not the point. The point is an idolatry of life having to make sense to you. Where you're driven by that. And listen, when suffering comes, when grieving comes, and you then add on top of that sinfulness in the idolatry of things making sense to you, that's not going to help your suffering and grieving. Instead, say, you know what, God? It makes sense to you. I trust you that one day I'm sure I will understand. When life doesn't make sense to you, don't forget, it makes perfect sense to God. In suffering and in all things, it makes sense to God. Next, I want you to see this, is that in the midst of suffering, the Spirit is transforming you. 1 Peter 1, 2. He says this, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The power, listen, the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of sin is still here. I don't know if that's a surprise to you or not, but the power of sin has been broken, but the presence of it is still there in you, in me. Now we say at this moment, now listen here, Peter, we're suffering. How dare you talk about my sin right now? We're hurting. How dare you bring up my faithfulness right now? I'm hurting. How dare you remind us of what is right right now? We're struggling over here. Now, now, now listen. Sometimes it's appropriate to just sit and cry and grieve with somebody. Absolutely. This is not uh, uh, an encouragement to someone suffering to get in and start etching away at their faithfulness. Uh, start grinding away at their sin. This should be done in wisdom and carefulness. Okay, but what I'm going after is preparing our heart. What part? Part of what P- Peter is going. I almost said Paul. What Peter is going after here is how we help those, and then particularly those hearts that are in suffering or are about to be in suffering. How should we prepare? How should we be thinking about this idea? of faithfulness and the sanctification of the Spirit in the midst of our suffering, many times we would say, it's now's not the time. Let me hurt. You understand, let me, let me give us kind of a, a presupposition here. You understand that sanctification is not about a good person becoming a better person, right? Follow me with this. Sanctification is not about a good person becoming a better person. Sanctification is about a sinner becoming more holy like Jesus. Okay? There's some very fundamental differences. Next, the question is this. What is your identity? 
Is your identity someone who can defeat sin by your own strength? Is your identity someone who just overlooks sin or justifies it away? Is your identity someone who just moves from good person to better person? I was having a conversation with someone about that on the phone not too long ago. I, I thought it was as long as I kept the Ten Commandments, everything else in my life was just about being a good person, becoming a better person. That was their belief taught, particularly in their Catholic upbringing. Someone who just moves from being a good person to a better. What is your identity? Listen, if you're God's child, meaning you have trusted by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, the Spirit is battling with sin on your behalf. Now that says two things to us. Two things. One is that sin is so strong that you need help. Now, I know you go, well, well, duh. Yeah, but how much do you actually cry out to the Spirit to help you in your sin? God, I need help. This is so deeply rooted in me. I don't see that I can overcome it ever. Now, how does the Spirit help? He helps by changing desires. He helps by understanding the Scriptures. He prays when we don't know what to pray. He, he helps by sending us other believers to speak the truth into our lives. This, first of all, the sin is so strong that it needs help. But number two, that the Spirit is indeed in the business of sanctification. So if you're in the middle of suffering and thinking about faithfulness. Yes, that should be at the forefront of your mind, is my holiness as a representative of God through this suffering. Remember, because this suffering, there's a bigger picture here than just your situation. And what we need to know is that in the midst of that, that the Spirit is in the business of sanctification, that you are progressively being transformed by His grace. You'll read Philippians 1, but the idea is, as far as it concerns this, is that the Spirit will not stop until it's done. Praise God for that. You know what that means? If, the, if, if he's in the business of sanctification and he will not stop until it does, do you know what that means? There is hope for your marriage. There is hope for your spouse. There is hope for you in singleness and trying to faithfully live before God. There is hope for your difficult friendships. There is hope for that broken relative. There is hope for sins unseen. Things that you don't even recognize are there yet, that you don't even know of. You know what it's like to sit across from the table with uh, uh, someone who's new in their journey and their walk with Jesus? Like, to sit there and go, you know, this person has no clue their sinfulness. But God will be faithful to transform them through it. There are sins that they don't even see. But there are also sins in my life that I don't even know are there. But the Spirit is at war with me against those things. 
This sanctifying work is in many ways a chief job of the Spirit. God has come to you and He battles on your behalf. He fights the war with sin on your behalf. You are not alone. Let me ask you this question. Why do we get so defensive when our sanctification gets challenged, whether it's in the midst of suffering or any time for that matter? Why do we get so defensive? What do you mean I'm sinning that way? I don't think I'm sinning that way, right? Because to us, I think for a majority of us this is the issue, and it's really a a pride-rooted issue. Because to us, we are good people becoming better people. So how dare you attack my goodness? But if like like Peter and Paul, we understand that we are a hostile people that God has chosen to make holy people, then how dare you not help me become more holy? How dare you withhold the grace from me? Right, because see, then, then the assault is not on my goodness. The assault is on my evilness. And who wouldn't want to be a part of an assault on evilness? Those who are too wrapped up in admiring the glory of their own goodness. Peter can say this, this idea of sanctification by the Spirit, even in the midst of suffering, because to Peter, and I'm going to drive here for the next few minutes, because to Peter, repentance and faith, this walking in sanctification that looks like repentance and faith empowered by the Spirit, because he looks at that as an encouraging thing. As an, you hear me? As a blessed thing. As an honored thing. Something to be enjoyed. Something to be thankful to be a part of. But to a prideful heart, it's not. To Peter, becoming more holy, even in the midst of suffering, is a joyful thing. It's a good thing. It's a blessed thing. And it's a blessing to have been elected to live this life of repentance and faith. That's what Peter is driving at. The next thing is this. We have been chosen for obedience to Christ. We have been chosen for obedience to Christ. Here's where that phrase is lost on us. Because we think we can be obedient to Christ apart from God having chosen us. We think I can make my way to being obedient to God apart from God specifically choosing me. So when that is the case, when we throw the idea of election out the window and predestination out the window and it's we can make our way to choosing God on our own, then the blessedness of obedience, meaning the enjoyment, the reward of obedience gets thrown out the window. Why? Because I got there on my own. Peter sees it's an amazing thing that we could be chosen for obedience to Christ. So if we have been chosen to obedience, what does that make obedience? A reward. A reward. If we made it to obedience to God on our own, then what is obedience? 
a duty that got us to God. But if obedience is the result of Him choosing, then it is a grace from His electing hand. Obedience is a reward. It's a grace. And if that is true, it's connected to suffering. If that is true, that obedience is a reward, getting to obey God instead of the sinful desires of our hearts, if that is a reward, why would we not want to hear the call to obedience in the midst even of suffering? Why would we not want to hear in the midst of suffering, here's my reward, I'm called to obey. Do you see it? A reminder that we have been chosen and called to obedience is an honor. It's a blessing. It's a grace. Would you feel encouraged in the midst of your suffering to be reminded of your calling to obedience? If, I, if, if I'm just being honest, I would struggle with that because I struggle to see obedience, holiness, as a reward. But to Peter, it's a reminder of a reward. Listen, in the midst of suffering, your call, you get to obey Jesus no matter what. And this is radical. In our world and in most churches today, this makes no sense. No sense whatsoever. In part, because we've rejected the doctrine of election and exchanged it for a doctrine of the goodness of man. And then in our world, we make excuses for everything, right? Well, I spoke to you this way because I'm stressed. Well, I'm allowed to talk to you this way because it's just the way I feel. Or I'm allowed to make this decision because, you know, it's just a matter of wisdom. Where You can't call, you, uh, obedience, it's kind of a second thought. Or a third thought, maybe. But here's the truth. And this is part of this elected exiles, this elected foreigners, is part of the truth wrapped up in there. And this call to obedience is this. You are no longer ruled by your desires, your emotions, and you are not the Lord over your own life. Jesus is Lord of your life even in the midst of the hardest situations. He is both Lord in the sense that you can trust Him and follow Him, and, but He's also Lord in the sense that He owns your actions, your responses, your emotions, everything in the midst of whatever we are going through. He commands the very air molecules that flow in and out of your lungs. He owns our vocal cords. He owns our hearts and emotions. He owns our affections. He owns the work of our hands and the steps of our feet. He owns the thoughts of our mind. All of it is to be submitted to the obedience of Jesus. Peter says in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. All you that are suffering, your call is to obedience to Jesus. I see this in my own life, and I also see this in our church's life. 
Just how many times we make decisions, even ones we would categorize as wisdom decisions, without consideration to its, as to its obedience to Christ. Now hear me, many times the decisions that we have to make, A or B, doesn't really make that big of a difference. But what makes the difference is what our heart is doing in the midst of that decision. To keep in the theme of suffering here, a lot of times we make decisions because we're running from obedience of something in in an area that doesn't make sense to us. We're running over here because this doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to choose A because what's going on in my life right now doesn't make sense to me. Or here's another thought. Why is it when we are in relational distress that our first thought isn't, I wonder where I wasn't obedient to Jesus? Again, all of these things, obedience to Christ should be at the forefront of our mind. Even in these wisdom decisions, what is most honoring to the Lord? Is my heart in a place of honor, of obedience? You have been called to submit everything that you are and everything that you do to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that that is the highest honor you could ever be given? It's not a duty. Oh, this is just my duty. No, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. This is a big part of me in this, this funeral this past week. I just I did not want to do it. Why? Because it's just going to be hard. It'll be hard. My response to the person, just thinking profusely before and afterwards, and listen, it's my honor. It's my honor my privilege. It's a blessing to me, even though it doesn't make sense to me. Because it still doesn't make sense to me. Ted, Ted Tripp, so the other Tripp brother said this, you will never understand the call to obey until you understand that obedience is itself a reward. That I, that's the end of the quote, that, that I am one of God's children And I have been called and chosen to be a part of His plan. I have been set free from my rulership to embrace His. The privilege of calling Him Lord. So what motivates the actions and choices you make? The Lordship of Jesus, the clear call of His Word to obedience? Do you do it? Let me ask you this. Do you do it do you walk in obedience with a sense of privilege i get to do this listen that that exposes the heart really quickly right cuz then your heart goes ah oh, but i want to do this right and in that moment you go god i am sorry i am forsaking my privilege as a son or daughter to embrace the brokenness of this world I am a privileged son. I get to serve in your kingdom. I get to walk in obedience. You have chosen me to this. 
Now, here's the reality, right? We know that as we do this, we are going to make mistakes, right? We are going to fail. We are not going to walk perfectly in obedience in the midst of suffering or otherwise. And Peter, I love how Peter closes out verse 2. He says this, We have been chosen to be sprinkled with Christ's blood. We have been chosen to be sprinkled with Christ's blood. 1 Peter 1, 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Now this is really important that we understand this phrase well. This is the image of cleansing and forgiveness. Right? Write that down. Cleansing and forgiveness. It's both. Not just one or the other. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just cleansing. It's both. Cleansing and forgiveness. It's an Old Testament image. It's only by the shed blood of Jesus that sprinkles our souls that we can stand before God. Maybe another important thing to write down. Only by the shed blood of Jesus that sprinkles our souls that we can stand before God. But listen, listen, even all you note takers, unless you can write and listen at the same time, I can't. This is not the picture of a one-time cleansing. This is different. This is not the picture of, I was a sinner, I'm now professing faith in Jesus, and I've now been washed in the blood, that's done, now I move on towards heaven and righteousness and so on and so forth. This is an ongoing sprinkling. This is a continued action. Listen, we know that our obedience will always be speckled with sin, right? I mean, we know that, right? I, I hope so. If not, God will prove it to you in the, probably the next few minutes. The sprinkling here is like the cleansing of a leper. Go back and read Leviticus 14, like around verses 6 through 7. There's a ceremony was used for any kind of skin disease serious enough to exclude the sick person from the community. That's the picture, right? They have the skin disease. They're excluded from the community of worship. The picture of the leper, we've talked about this before, the picture of the leper is one of defilement, of spiritual defilement because of sin. That's the Old Testament picture given to us. And they would have to go through a cleansing a washing. And if they got the disease again, they'd have to go through the washing again. And if they picked it up again, they'd have to go through the washing again. It was a, a spiritual defilement, defilement that, that there was a cleansing that could be had once the disease was overcome. Even though we are charged to live for obedience, we are every day defiled by sin. Every day. I don't know if you realize that or not, but you should be repenting multiple times a day. You should know, hey, I repented for this yesterday. That's what I was walking in repentance for yesterday. You should know that. It should be off the tip of your tongue at a moment's notice. I mean, that, that is suffering, right? Suffering is... Suffering under the weight of being defiled by sin. That's discouraging. That's depressing. But look at what Peter is reminding us of. Our sin (laughs) 
is met with God's continual sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Your sin tomorrow, if you're a child of God, will be met with the cleansing power of the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Your sin in three days will be met with the cleansing, sprinkled blood of Jesus. Our hearts, because of sin and His grace, are continually cleansed, washed clean by the sprinkling of His blood. What's Peter giving us? He's giving us a continual reminder that our sins are forgiven and that we are welcome in God's presence and among His people. That's what Peter's saying. Without the sprinkled blood, you guys have no welcome invitation into God's presence. But because He continually washes you clean, you have invitation. We have invitation. 1 John 1.7 says this, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Listen, no matter how deep my struggle is or my failure is or how strong my weakness is, there is ongoing forgiveness, ongoing cleansing. And you know what that means? That you and I don't have to run from God's presence. Because of the blood, I can run toward Him instead of away from Him. How many times do we run away from Him when we know we are defiled by sin? There is no deliverance from that sin if we run from God's presence. But in God's presence is the sprinkling of this blood from Jesus. Because of the blood, I can run toward Him and once again receive His forgiveness. Let me ask you this question. Are you running from the only place of forgiveness and deliverance? Did you run from that yesterday? Don't run from it today. Don't run from it tomorrow. Listen, we are chosen foreigners. That God has chosen to love us and He knew us before the world began. The Spirit is transforming us into obedience to Christ that is a reward, not a duty. And as you sin, His blood continues to wash you clean. That is, at least in part, one of the biggest reasons why we participate in the Lord's Supper together. As they come forward, listen, we, we don't just take the Lord's Supper just to remember the day that He died on the cross for our sins. We partake in the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves and to remind each other that we are continually cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So I want to remind us as we partake the Lord's Supper again today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, walking in obedience to Him, to not partake. Just to sit in your seat, to watch. You won't be singled out. You won't be you know, made obvious or any of those things. But sit and watch. But again, if you are a follower of Jesus, walking in obedience, then partake. And be reminded. 
if you have unconfessed sin and you're unwilling to confess it, don't partake. Paul says that we, if when we partake of the Lord's Supper unrightly, that we actually are bringing judgment upon ourselves. But I would encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you have sin that needs to be confessed, confess it now. Partake and then walk in repentance. Meaning, what do I need to do to make this right? How do I walk this back? Let me pray for us. And then we'll move. Uh, thank you for these just very few opening words from your letter to the saints that have been dispersed during this time. Father, to those whom you elected unto salvation that you chose to, to, uh, to be your people and chose to make foreigners in this place. Father, I pray that we would see these things, that they would encourage our hearts, that they would convict us where necessary, and Father, they would guide us to, to love you more and to live more faithfully for you. Father, ultimately that you would be glorified in us that the world around us would see the glory of God in us and through us and by us. Father, that your glory would slay our glory, that we might have empty hands to behold yours. Let our time in the Lord's Supper today be an encouragement to our souls that it would spur us towards repentance and faith. I thank you for this church and the chance to sing together and worship together. That's in your son's name we pray. Amen.